Remember how we talked about the two different styles of fishing, the active fishing, where you have to do all the work? Well, this is passive fishing, where you let your bait do all the work. Pick up a good book, a good dog, go out to the bank, just watch the clouds float by while you're reading the book, and the bait does all the work. And if you should happen to kind of doze off a little bit, hey, that's why they call it recreational fishing. There are several different rigs that we can tie up to use natural baits. This is a Kentucky rig or a double dropper or triple dropper. Um, you have to be careful on which state you're fishing in. Indiana does allow three hooks. Some states may only allow two. But this is a very efficient rig. You have your weight down here, your line, and you have these droppers coming off the sides. We illustrate three different types of baits. This is a really good way to just kind of prospect to see what's in the area and to see what they're going to be biting on. This is a slip bobber rig. And we uh, talked earlier about the slip bobber. This is very handy when you want to have the bait more than four or five feet deep. By having this bobber that can slide up and down the line, you can really position these stopper knots wherever you, you, you want. Uh, right here, it's rigged wacky, so there's no weight, there's no swivels, there's no anything. This can just sit there and, and float in the current, um, be carried on by, by, the, uh, by the breeze. Very, very natural presentation. Here we see a slip bobber rig used. You can see that you could set this 20 feet deep if you want to. Uh, the bobber is going to be, be very effective at suspending your, your, your bait um, at whatever water depth you want. You can't do that with a, the normal uh, clip-on bobber. And right here, just a simple bottom rig. We've got some weight clipped onto the line that may be, oh, 12 inches, maybe 24 inches, even 36 inches. Whatever is comfortable to cast. If you wanted these weights to be 10 feet away, that's not going to work because you're not going to be able to cast that. This is super simple. I mean, you don't get any simpler than this. There's no bobber here. You're just casting this out. You can add a swivel in here if you have a problem with the line twisting. Or you can add either a, an egg weight or a bullet weight or even a, a, a bell sinker up here. If you do that, remember these will slide along the line and a fish can pick up your bait right here and swim off, but the bait is or the weight is not going to be moved. 
and so the fish is not going to feel any resistance as he carries the bait off with the line slipping through the sinker. Up here we have just a split shot. Of course they're going to detect that split shot. But this is, can be a very, very effective rig. Uh, catfishermen will use it. Carp fishermen will use it. It can come in very handy. Now right here we've got a double dropper or the Kentucky rig sitting right on the bottom. So you've cast this out, you know, a very good way. And hopefully your bait has a little bit of uh, buoyancy to them so that they don't just sit right on the bottom. If they're right on the bottom, sometimes it's really hard for fish to to detect them, especially if they're like the night crawler, he's no longer moving, but if they can suspend. You can buy worm injectors and it's, it's basically just an El Cheapo syringe that you can uh, <laughs> shoot a little bit of air into the worm and make them buoyant and he'll, they'll stay up off the bottom. I've never actually used one, but you could give it a try. Again, you're up here on the bank reading your book, patting your dog, drinking your favorite beverage. Just cast this out and let it sink. Well, how do you do, how do you tell if a fish is biting? Well, <laughs> that's why they they call it fishing. You you have to use some technique. Whenever you do this, you want it to get all the slack out of the line. If this line is coming right down onto the bottom and just lying all the way through here, you're probably not going to detect a fish. But if you get a tight line where you've pulled all the slack out right up to the point where you can feel your weight being dragged back to you, there you have a tight line. You want to keep it that way. And typically, if you're bank fishing and reading a book, you'll get a, um, a stick, a forked stick, that you can shove in the ground and then just let your, your rod rest on that. They actually make these really fancy commercial rigs for, for they're really big into, you know, carp fishermen are really big into these. And they have added bells and lights and whistles and sirens and just all kinds of crazy stuff. No, you need a forked stick. And just shove it in the ground, lay the rod tip on there, do two or three turns on your, your uh, reel, uh, handle and pull out all the slack until you can feel that weight and you're all set. You can do two things. You can watch where the line is going into the water and watch your rod tip. If you see your line in the water start to move out you've got a fish. If you see that rod tip starting to jingle, jiggle a little bit, you've got a fish. And don't just immediately grab it and start hauling away, but give it 
a few seconds. Watch what it's doing. And it's literally the same thing as watching a bobber. You know, you don't grab that bobber the very first time the, uh, uh, you, you see it move, but you're waiting until you've got a really strong take then you grab and, and set the uh, uh, set the hook. Uh, you might miss a couple whenever you're just getting the hang of it if you've never done this before. The other thing you can do if you're not reading a book is sitting there and you're just sitting there holding the rod, put your index finger on the line. You can feel all kinds of things that way. You'll be able to feel a fish pick up the bait and start to move with it. Especially if you have like a graphite rod that is incredibly sensitive to that. And you have the slack out of your line. The double or the, uh, the dropper loop is very effective, uh, very easy to tie if you want to rig up a uh, Kentucky rig and this might look intimidating but it's not you're simply taking making a loop grabbing one part of it and just kind of wrapping it twisting it around itself and then taking the far side of the loop and pulling it through the middle super simple super easy to do and so now you have a loop in the middle of your line. And if you want to make this really stupid simple, use snelled hooks. Because if you, if you remember, the snelled hook has a monofilament leader on it with a loop. And so you can just make a loop-to-loop -loop connection. If you need to change sizes of hooks, really easy to do. Just undo the loop, take it off, put the new one on. Take, put the loop back through, boom, you're done. Very, very simple, very, very easy. If you wanted to, you could also rig up the Kentucky rig using the three-way swivels. Now you're having to tie three different knots, where here you can tie just one, and using snelled hooks, you can just do the loop-to-loop, -loop, and it's, it's, it's super simple. Again, look at animateddots.com or netknots.com for the step-by-step -step instructions on how to tie this. Another knot you might want to, to play with is a polymer knot. This, again, is a very simple knot. In fact, it might even be more s simple than the improved clinch knot that we learned last unit. I think the only disadvantage of the polymer knot is, especially for fly fishermen, you have to double the line and then push it through the eye. Some hooks, you know, when you're starting to get down around 10s, 12s, the eye is too small to get a doubled line through. And so it doesn't work all that well at that point. Uh, but you're doubling up the line, pushing it through the eye, and tying an overhand knot. You can do this. You tie your shoes, overhand shoe, your, uh, the shoelace knot uses an overhand knot. And then you just bring it down around the hook, 
and snug everything up nice and tight couldn't be more simple. This is also a very good uh, uh, knot if you're using uh, a braided line. Now here we have the, the double uni knot. This is used particularly whenever you're tying like mo a monofilament leader onto braid or even fluorocarbon uh, onto braid. It's used to join two lines together. A pretty simple knot, although practice this because it does take some coordination. You're making a loop and then bringing the line and wrapping it around the, the two strands and then snugging it up. And then you're going to the tag end of your other line and doing the exact same thing. If you only do two loops on here, we call that uh, we call that a double fisherman's knot. Here we're we're doing uh, three loops or even four, and now we're we're calling that the uh, the uni knot. Somebody probably has a patent on this. When you get both knots tied, you just pull on your standing lines, and that knot will snug right up. It's very very strong. Remember, especially when you're using monofilament and fluorocarbon, you want to lubricate the knot before you pull it tight. There's a lot of heat that can be generated with these lines passing over each other from friction and with a little bit of, of uh, water or saliva you'll cut down that friction tremendously and you'll have a much much stronger knot. If you would give me a moment, I would like to go back in history and talk about Dame Juliana Burns. She was a, a nun in England, and she published a book in 1496 called The Treatise of Fishing with an Angle. This is over 500 years ago. This is considered one of the very first recreational sport fishing pieces of literature. This is a, an interesting period in history in England. The Hundred Years' War is over. Pieces finally come to the country. The economy is really picking up, which if you aren't fighting wars, it tends to do. And there is a growing middle class in fact, people are gaining enough money that they're not spending nearly every waking hour in the production of food. And leisure time, for the first time, starts to become a thing. The, the nobility was the first people to kind of pick up on this. They actually had been practicing, you know, leisure sports for, for hundreds of years prior to this. But now it's kind of working down into the, into the upper middle class and into the middle class. So Burns wrote this, this giant book about fishing in England. And if you go to on uh, Canvas under Files, I have copies of both the original 
Middle English version, which this treatise of fishing with an angle is, and also a modern um, translation of that. You can read the Middle English version if you don't concentrate too much on the spelling and just look at the words and kind of let the sounds come out. This was a period of time in literature where things were not really established. Nobody got points counted off for spelling or for grammar because you just kind of made this up. If you could write that was a major accomplishment just within itself. No one's going to nitpick about a dangling elliptical modifier. One of the unique things in Treatise of Fishing with an Angle is that she came up with 10 principles that you need to follow to catch fish. And those 10 principles are still alive and well today. This is a little excerpt. If ye will be crafty in angling, ye must first learn to make your own harness. That is, to make your rod, your lines of different colors. After that, you must know how ye shall angle, in what place of the water, how deep, and what time of day, for what matter of fish, in what weather, how many impediments there be for fishing that is called angling, and, and especially with what baits to every different fish in every month of the year. And it just goes on for, you know, I think it's someplace around 500 pages. Here's an example of how to make that that harness. It, this is basically a, um, a telescopic rod. It's in two parts and the upper part will slide down into the lower part. There's a term in here where you should be able to walk through town and no one is the wiser that you are going angling. Here's something else from her book that's interesting. See if you can figure out what she's saying here. Yep, you got it. This is a pike rig for fishing for pike. We haven't got to that yet, but, but pike are very similar to like musky that uh, you've, you've might have seen uh, uh, pictures of, uh, read about, perhaps caught yourself. Uh, very popular in, in England, even today, very, very popular. And she says to use plum, which that today we would call that lead. And plum was the old English term for it. And if you remember your uh, periodic table and the symbol for lead, you can see where that was derived from. Cork, which we just call a bobber, and armed with wire. So pike have teeth, and they can easily, you know, slice through monofilament. So 
here are three different methods that she's suggesting for pike. This is a your 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 plum right here, your your lead, and these this is probably strip lead that you pound out the lead into long thin strips and then wrap it around the the line down here this is very unique this is actually chain and so you can add or subtract the number of links to vary the amount of of weight i i think this is incredibly ingenious and here we have actual wire and you can see how it's kind of knotted up uh, right here and so that would provide both the weight and the um, protection from the, the uh, teeth of the pike. Compare that to Dave's pike rig that I got off the internet. And we have a hook and a line and an interchangeable weight and a tubed slider or a bobber. And then your line. So, not much has changed in 500 years. Okay, that does it for um, uh, Unit 2, Part 3. And we're going to move on to actually finding fish. And we'll do that next week. <laughs>